Let's open our Bibles now and turn to our scripture reading. We'll carry on where we left off this morning in Luke chapter 19. Luke 19, verse 11, to the end of the chapter. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, A noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, say, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, You are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. 
For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's respond by singing from Psalm 118, stanzas 6 and 7. Text and the theme for the sermon come from Luke 19, verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And after the proclamation of God's word, we will sing together from hymn 29, stanzas 1, 2, and 3. Congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, back in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, we read that the Lord Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem to be taken up into glory. And ever since Jesus set his face towards that city, Jesus has been moving in that direction. And here in Luke chapter 19, we see him approaching the city of Jerusalem. It's clear from what we read that his followers were expecting the kingdom of God to appear immediately. But it's also clear from the parable of the ten minas that Jesus is saying there is going to be a delay in the coming of the kingdom. And Jesus is the nobleman in the parable who is going to a far country to receive a kingdom and then return Jesus is therefore not going to Jerusalem for his coronation, but he's going to the city to die. That's what he also explains in these chapters 18. We read, we read it this morning. And yet, even before he is raised up onto the cross, God is going to give the citizens of Jerusalem a glimpse of the royal power and honor that Jesus rightly deserves. His royal entry into the city was a momentary triumph before his impending death. It was a triumph that revealed his true identity, his royal power, also his humility. And this triumph invites everyone who has eyes to see and ears to hear to acknowledge the Son of Man as Lord and King because he comes in the name of the Lord. And that's the theme for the sermon. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. We will consider first that he displays his royalty. Secondly, he exhibits his humility. And in the third place, he receives his glory. The incident that Luke records in this chapter is absolutely vital to the unfolding drama. Jesus was just a few kilometers away from Jerusalem, coming from Jericho, He was approaching the cities of Bethphage and Bethany, and the city is almost in sight. And then Jesus sends two of his disciples to make preparations for his entrance into the city. He sends them into one of the villages, 
it's not explicit which one it is, where they will find a colt. They must bring this colt to him. Matthew, in his gospel, specifies that this colt was the colt of a donkey. Now, there are a number of significant aspects to this narrative. The key place name in this account is the village of Bethphage. It was located near or perhaps even on the top of Mount, on the Mount of Olives, a mountain that rises about 300 feet higher than the city of Jerusalem. And it has a special historical significance in the history of God's people. The prophet Ezekiel, for example, had a vision of the glory of the Lord departing from Jerusalem and settling on the Mount of Olives, Ezekiel chapter 11. Even more significantly, the prophet Zechariah identified the Mount of Olives as the site where the Messiah would be revealed. In Zechariah 10, we read, Behold, the day is coming for the Lord. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. And so the Mount of Olives is theologically significant. And many of the people in Jerusalem would have been well aware of this. Another crucial Old Testament passage is connected to these events. Zechariah 9 verse 9, where we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So again, for the Jews who knew their Hebrew Bible, they would know that what was happening here is related to what the Scriptures say about Messiah. There's nothing accidental about the manner in which Jesus is approaching the city of Jerusalem. Another thing that's significant here is that the colt that Jesus rode on had never been used before. In the Old Testament, such an animal had special value. An unbroken beast of burden was reserved for special purposes, even for special sacrifices. For example, in Deuteronomy 21, verse 3, we read that an unused heifer was to be used for the atonement of an unsolved murder. So you see, everything that's happening here is being carefully arranged and orchestrated by the Lord Jesus Christ. He is orchestrating the events of his his arrival, his entry into the city, to be the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And again, the Jews, familiar with their Old Testament scriptures, would have been well aware of the connections to what Jesus was doing. Furthermore, Jesus is acting like a king. He sends two of his disciples ahead of him to commandeer a mount for him. At first glance, you might think, well, these guys are being instructed to be rustlers, but, and sure enough, the owners of the donkey The first thing they do is, what are you doing? They ask, what are you doing? That's the obvious question. But the answer almost sounds like a password, doesn't it? The Lord needs it. Many people wonder, well, how is this possible that these owners agree to this? Well, the answer could be as simple as that they were expecting it or that they knew the Lord Jesus Christ. It's really not as mysterious as it sounds. What is perhaps more remarkable is that Jesus is asking for a colt. Jesus didn't have any possessions of his own. Certainly no place he could call home. Apparently he didn't even carry money with him because later on when he wanted to make a point about what we owe God and what we owe to Caesar, he had to borrow a coin from a bystander. 
But not only did Jesus have very little in the way of possessions, he never asked for anything either. In the Gospels, we hardly ever see him claiming property for himself. The whole purpose of his ministry was to let go of his divine privileges so that he could become our servant. He was always giving. But in this instance, as he makes preparations for his entry into Jerusalem, he says that he needs a donkey, the colt of a donkey. In congregation, what we need to understand is that this donkey is rightfully his. After all, he had made it in the first place. Jesus Christ is the creator God. Scripture says, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. All things were created through him and for him. Colossians 1 verse 16. So when the disciples brought this colt to the Lord, they were bringing something to him that was made by him and for him. It is his donkey to begin with, to be used for his glory. And Jesus did this deliberately. He was entering Jerusalem during the feast of Passover. There were thousands of pilgrims in the city. And it was the custom for people to enter the city on foot. And if you arrived at Jerusalem riding a donkey or a horse, you would dismount before you entered the city as you approached the last stretch. But Jesus is doing something unusual, something that is bound to catch the attention of the people. And so many times during his ministry, he didn't want people to know that he was there, that he had performed a miracle. He didn't even want people to know that he was the Christ. But now the time had come for him to be taken up, up onto the cross, and up into glory. The time for secrecy was over. The time had come for God to reveal the true identity of his Son. And so we see the Lord Jesus acting with royal authority. He accepts and claims the privilege and the right of a king because he has this right. He has the right to enter Jerusalem as the heir of David, the royal son of David. He has the right to enter the city chosen by God, for he is God's son. And he has the right to claim personal ownership of this donkey. In fact, he has the right to claim ownership of everything he has made. The owners of the donkey must have understood this when they hear that Jesus needs their donkey. They don't raise an objection. They let him have it. They didn't claim it as their own. They offer it in service of the king, knowing that the Lord needs it. That's all they needed to know. What about you, brothers and sisters? What is your attitude toward your possessions, your toys, your time, your talents, your money, your house, your car? If the Lord needs them, may he use them as he pleases. Are your possessions available for the king and for the kingdom? Are you willing to let the king stake his claim to what is rightfully his? Secondly, the king also exhibits his humility. Ordinarily, you would expect a king to ride on a mighty war horse, followed by carts loaded with wealth and booty. But that's not how King Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He came gentle, riding on a donkey, because he knew the words of the prophecy, Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. 
Jesus was certainly presenting himself as king of Israel, and the parable about the nobleman who went off into a far country to receive his kingdom would have reinforced this image in the minds of those who had heard that parable, those who were following him. And now his royalty is in full view, and the people, they recognize this. That's clear from their words of acclamation. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They recognized that he was coming as their king. But what they did not understand was what kind of a king he had come to be. Entering Jerusalem on a donkey was not a political statement on his part, but it was a spiritual statement. Jesus had not come to take control of the government. He had not come to overthrow the Roman government. That's not the kind of king he came to be. He was a different kind of king. One who also came in meekness and humility. One who came to offer his own life for the life of his people. And yes, he would accept the praise of his people if they offered it to him. But if they rejected him, he would not even defend himself, even to the point of death, even if that rejection cost him his life. One scholar has written, Jesus could just as well have ridden into the city on a high horse. But the donkey is a symbol that Jesus deliberately rejects any arrogant trust in the strength of a horse. Instead, he expresses humble subservience to the sovereignty of God's will. And so he rides into the city as the Son of God, but at the same time as the Son of Man, he is both humble and victorious, both king and servant. Brothers and sisters, King Jesus rides into our lives in the same manner today, with gentleness and humility. He is no tyrant. He does not crush us with his superior power, but he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus didn't ride into Jerusalem either to force everyone to his will. He didn't barge into the city at the head of an army to set everyone straight. He doesn't spread his kingdom with cannons and and rifles, but he spreads his kingdom with the sword of the Spirit. And that's how we too ought to enter the lives of those around us, in the same spirit displayed by our Savior and King. We don't ride into the lives of others to set them straight. That goes for the lives of our children, our spouse, our neighbors, and anyone else we meet. We come to people with the gentleness and peace that King Jesus shows to his subjects. And then then we see also that this king, who is both royal and humble, receives his glory. After displaying his authority... He receives his glory, or at least some of it. The disciples are the ones who set the stage for what follows. They throw their cloaks on the donkey, and they set Jesus on the donkey. Here's the first acknowledgement that Christ, that Jesus, is king. Because kings don't ride bareback, they ride in a saddle. But they didn't have a saddle, so they used what they had, their own cloaks. And they cover the donkey's back. And then the crowds join in the adoration of the king. And as Jesus goes along the road, they spread out their cloaks on the road. 
as if they're saying, this road is not worthy of you, King Jesus, and we consider it an honor for your donkey to trample on our clothing. And the other Gospels also mention that the people are waving palm branches. And Luke tells us that the crowd begins to swell. Spontaneously, more and more people are throwing their cloaks onto the road. And as he comes closer to Jerusalem, more and more people join the parade. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Imagine the scene. It was the beginning of the Passover feast. Thousands of pilgrims had been streaming into the city. Expectations are running high, so when people hear the king is coming, the atmosphere becomes electric. Emotions are running high. Imagine yourself in the crowd. Even if you're close to the city or in the city, you can look up the road that's leading down from the Mount of Olives. You could see Jesus and the crowds following him coming down the road toward the city. And for those who were walking with Jesus, they had plenty of opportunity to see the city. There was many places on the road coming down from the Mount of Olives where you could see the temple and the buildings and the city visible to the people with Jesus. It would have stirred their emotions. And soon another cry is lifted up, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Words taken from Psalm 118 a psalm that's quoted often in connection with prophecy of Jesus' life and ministry. Even before the time of Christ, Israel loved this psalm because it was a song full of hope, a song of the promise of a Messiah, a song full of national spirit. That's the kind of song you sing when the king has won a mighty victory and he's coming into the city, into the capital city with his victory parade. And then they add peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Those are familiar words too, aren't they? Words sung by the angels on the night when Christ was born. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. The king had come. And at his coming, the people give glory to God. And that's what we owe him, congregation. That's the very reason we were created. To give glory to the most high God in the name of Jesus Christ, our king. Now, it's not that hard to imagine yourself there, to imagine yourself worshiping this king in this atmosphere of of joy and anticipation. But not everybody is happy with the celebration. It's those pesky Pharisees again. They don't believe that Jesus is the Christ or that he's the king. And so they think that what the people are doing is blasphemy, of course, no one. But God deserves that kind of praise. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Not only do they not want to worship the king, they don't want anyone else worshiping the king. But the king will have his worship. And he answers them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. With these words, Jesus claims that he deserves the worship of all creation. Even if human beings stop praising him, he will have his glory, glory that he deserves. If necessary, the stones will cry out. In Romans 8, Paul writes, The creation waits with eager longing for the day of salvation when it will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the the children of God. 
Jesus' answer to the Pharisees implies that creation is almost waiting with eager longing to burst forth into a song of praise. The rocks are ready to break their stony silence if the people will not sing. If the people stop worshipping Jesus, the whole universe will fill the silence with praise. And Jesus will not and cannot deny that this is what he truly deserves. His triumphal entry into Jerusalem and his answer to the Pharisees is one of the clearest proofs that Jesus really is who he says he is. The Christ of God, the King of the earth, our Lord and our Savior. Wouldn't it have been something to be there on that day? Because what a day it was to be part of that crowd. But at the same time, there's also something very terribly sad about that day because there was not one single person in that crowd who had the proper expectations of the king. There was a groundswell of support from the crowds hoping he would come to overthrow the Roman government. They had hoped to see the kingdom of God inaugurated immediately, writes Luke, maybe within a day or two. But Jesus had just told them, a parable to make it very clear that the kingdom was not going to appear at once. Jesus was going on a far journey to leave the world. But they did not have ears to hear. And that's why they were so terribly, terribly disappointed when Jesus allowed himself to be arrested, allowed himself to be put on trial, allowed himself to be nailed to the cross. They had earthly expectations of the Messiah But of course, that's not what Jesus wanted from his followers. Children of the kingdom are to have other expectations. As we heard this morning, the message of the kingdom is is for the least and the last, the lost and the poor. And that's why the message of the kingdom also irritated the Pharisees so much. Jesus' preaching had made it very clear that those who think that they are automatically in the kingdom because of their religious affiliation and their self-righteousness, well, they are the ones who might find that they are not in the kingdom, not part of the kingdom. And those who thought they didn't stand a chance of being in the kingdom, they found that they were in the kingdom because Jesus Christ had not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And so those of us who think our church membership and faithful attendance is our ticket to heaven, we might find ourselves outside of the kingdom. And then there are others who are maybe afraid of coming to church, afraid that the roof might fall in because they even dare to show up for church. But as we heard this morning, those are the people that Jesus is interested in. And that's why the gospel is always offensive to religious people. The gospel is offensive to those who think they're in, who think they're first. But those who consider themselves sick and lost, who know that they are the lowest, who know that they are in need of a physician, for them the story will end well. Those who don't think of themselves as the least and the last, who don't think that they are the lowest, they don't even realize that they're not in the kingdom. And that's because they've always been trying so hard to make sure that they're not the least and the lowest. The Pharisees, they thought they were in. So they didn't need Jesus. They didn't need his forgiveness. They didn't need his blessing. 
and they certainly didn't want him to be their king. They were like the delegation in the parable of the ten minas, the delegation that was sent after the king. We do not want this man to reign over us. Well, brothers and sisters, what about us? Might have been wonderful to be part of the parade on Palm Sunday so many years ago. But the story in Luke 19 seems to imply that the parade was pretty short-lived. Jesus wept over the city, he cleaned out the temple, and a few days later he was crucified. But the truth is, the truth is, congregation, that the parade of King Jesus is still going on. And it's still going strong. King Jesus is moving triumphantly and his kingdom is growing. While he is on this journey to a faraway country, it will keep growing. And in his absence, his power reaches to the ends of the earth. Think of the words of Psalm 2. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It happens often enough, doesn't it? When we, we see the news, we, we view the goings-on in this world, we, we sometimes come to the conclusion that man has a lot of control in this world. Sometimes we wonder why are these things happening? What's really going on? Well, if we read our Bibles and we understand who's really in charge, then we have an answer to those questions about what's going on. Because ultimately, all the terrorism and all the secularism and all the hatred directed at the church is hatred directed against Christ. Remember the response of the delegation. We don't want this man to reign over us. And then what does the king do? He gets on his colt and he rides into Jerusalem. All the donkeys in the world are his to commandeer. The, stone, the stones will sing his praises if the people are silent. And no one can stop him from driving out the money changers out of the temple. This is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And the response, we don't want this man to be our king. Well, that's the response of many people today too. In fact, by nature, that's the response that lives in our hearts too. I don't want Jesus to reign over me. What about you, congregation, brothers and sisters? Jesus is riding into your life. Every time you hear the gospel proclaimed, he's riding into your life. He's still riding into your life. And that brings a challenge. King Jesus was also bringing a challenge to the people of Jerusalem. Are we going to honor him? Or are we going to let the stones sing his praises? As confessing Christians, we believe that Christ is King. We know that He is true God and true man. He died on the cross. He rose again on the third day. We know who He is. But when you think of the man on the donkey riding into the city, who is He to you? That's the question that this text makes us face. Is He just an article of your faith, part of our confession? Or is He the King whom you trust and you love? Are you convinced that he is the way, the truth, and the life? Because the significance of this man arriving on a cult is of eternal consequence. 
you commit yourself to this king, when you give yourself to him, and when you believe in his gospel, then you are included in his kingdom. And then you are an ambassador for him and for his gospel. And then your life is transformed and it transforms everything for you. And it transforms whatever you do. If you sell cars or build houses or prepare legal documents or wash the dishes or whatever you do for the glory of God, you do it for his kingdom. And so the parade goes on. The parade goes on. The triumphal entry into Jerusalem, that was just the beginning. And it goes on. And someday the king will return. Revelation 19 portrays him on a white horse, coming to conquer and to usher in his eternal kingdom. And on that day, all those who said, we don't want this man to be our king, that will be a terrible day for those people. But for those of us who trust in this king, That will be a great day. Amen. Let's respond to God's word by singing from hymn 29, stanzas 1, 2, and 3.